uh, I, I spoke on this topic a couple months ago. I don't remember. It was in the Bridge Builders class. And um, it was, uh, it, if you were there, some of this may be a little similar to that, um, that talk that I did. Melissa and I actually did that together. Um, but intimacy in marriage is something that I'm very passionate about. I think, um, you know, Paul talks about, not you, Paul, but Paul in the Bible, talks about, yeah, uh, it talks about how um, uh, marriage is synonymous to our relationship with Christ and that we can learn about our, how our marriage is to be from our relationship with Christ and vice versa. And I think, you know, similarly, we can learn about not just what our marriage should be like, but what our relationship should be like. So even though the title of this is Intimacy in Marriage, I would, I would also say that, you know, the primary focus is intimacy. And, um, and, and we'll talk some about how that manifests itself in, in marriage. But I think that these principles are true um, in all of our relationships. Um, so kind of the framework that I want you to think about is intimacy uh, is the idea of knowing and being known. Throughout Scripture, when actually when, the, when Scripture references uh, any kind of sexual intimacy, um, it actually says they were known by so-and-so. Um, and so that is the picture that we get in Scripture of, of what intimacy is. So there are some, uh, there are some things that we do that prevent intimacy, and I'm going to start there tonight, okay? And I'm going to tell a story on myself um, and my wife's in the room, so she can, you know, she can chime in if she'd like to. Um, this is, this, this happened, I don't know, probably two years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. We were, Melissa had just worked the night before and we were getting ready for church. Um, was it a Wednesday night? Yeah, it was a Wednesday night and we were not happy with each other. Um, we got in a fight and I don't really, I don't remember specifically what the fight was about. Um, I'm sure that I was right and that's really all that's important. But yes, and Melissa had just worked the night before, which means she worked an overnight shift for 12 hours, right? And had probably slept maybe two or three hours that day and taken care of the kids all day. So, uh, we had, we'd been in a fight and I said to Melissa, um, you know, let's go, um, let's go ahead and get in the car. And she says, well, I'd like to get some coffee on the way. And so keep in mind, we're, we're doing the, you know, I'm mad at you, but I'm talking to you, but I don't want to like talk to you more than I have to right now. Everybody, you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. So, so I, I'm like, well, I say, well, where do you want to go? Which way do you want to go to get the coffee? And she says, well, which way do you want to go to church? And then I'll choose where I want to get coffee from. And I said, well, just tell me where you want to get coffee from and I'll go that way to church. And she said, no, just tell me where you want, which way you want to go and I'll, I'll tell you where I want to get coffee. And we were, I mean, we did this. It sounded like a, a playground fight. What, 15 minutes sitting in the driveway? I think we were late to church that night because we, we could not, neither one of us would give any ground, you know? 
And um, I think that that what happens is we get so caught up with one another in places that we are irritated with the other person or we um, we have expectations of the other person that we we forget that this is a person sitting right in front of us, right? Not only is this a person, but this is our spouse, somebody who's chosen to spend their lives with us. And I think what happens is we get so caught up in our own junk that we end up hiding from each other. We hide what we want. We hide what we need. We hide what we like about the person. We just hide. And then this other person comes out, somebody that we don't intend to be, somebody we never intended to be. You think about the worst fights that you've had with your spouse or with a friend. Is that the person that you set out that when you said your vows, that you said in your mind, is that the person you imagined you would be? Forget what your spouse is doing, right? Do you feel inside the way that you intended to feel with that person? Or do you see what you intended to see in that person? The difference between who we become in those moments and who we, who we intend to be is that's the challenge of intimacy, right? And we end up putting up walls and barriers that build up over time and prevent us from getting to one another. So I think Melissa and I have really found that when we do that kind of hiding, when we back away and we move into our defensive postures and we, we kind of step into these people that we didn't intend to be, that kind of hiding is probably one of the most dangerous things that we do with each other. I think that um, there are several reasons why we hide, but I want to start tonight with uh, what happens in Genesis 2 and 3 because I think that really is where we get a good picture of why we hide or, or what happens when we hide. Okay? So if you remember Genesis 2, God has created the, the, the earth. He's created man and woman. And then Adam sees Eve and he's like, whoa, she's awesome. Thank you, God. And then he says, now this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And right after that phrase, it says they were naked and they were together. They were naked and they were unashamed. So what that means is uh, some of my scholar friends that I work with at Harding uh, who know a lot more about the Bible than I do. So I always am like going to ask them about these little things. I'm sure they get irritated sometimes, but I'm like, because oh, I want to know the specifics of what, what, the, what the scripture is telling us here. But, but the idea of being naked and unashamed is the idea of being childlike, to be without reservation, to be free and unhindered by anything with one another together in, in, in a joyful relationship with each other. That's what that's talking about, right? So then we look at Genesis 3, what happens? It, the serpent enters the picture, right? They're strolling around through the garden. They stop by the tree and there's the serpent. And, and God has told them, you can do anything. Everything is yours. 
Everything is under your dominion. The only thing you cannot do is eat from this one tree. And Eve finds herself there and the serpent comes in and tempts her. And I won't, you know, we, we, we are all familiar with the story of what happens. But what's interesting is when the serpent says, you're not going to die, eat the fruit. You're not going to die. God knows that it's going to make you like him. And that's why he doesn't want you to eat it. It says that she grasps for the fruit. And this is going to be important in just a minute. She grasps for it and takes and eats it. And her eyes are opened. She gives some to her husband. And then the next scene, we find God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And where are Adam and Eve? They're hiding. There's one other really interesting thing there, too. They've clothed themselves. So they went from naked and hiding, I mean, naked and unashamed, to clothed and hiding. Now, I think their story is not just their story, it's our story, too. I think it is a depiction of relationships with God and with one another. So I think that there are several things that are important about what happens in the garden story that help us understand why do we do what we do? I mean, is, are you ever, do you ever have those moments? I have these moments all the time, okay? And, and I may just be weird. Well, I am weird, but it may just only be me, okay? So I have these moments where like I'm alone, I'm driving home and I'm like, man, I can't wait to get home and see Melissa and the kids and I have these visions of the kids, you know, frolicking towards me, daddy, daddy, they're going to wrap me up in a big hug and shower me with kisses. And Melissa's just going to, you know, just swoon over me as soon as I walk in the door about how amazing and studly I am. Right. And it never happens. Not because she doesn't want to, but what happens? When I walk in the door, there's kids screaming, there's toys, I'm dodging people and toys and all kinds of stuff. And Melissa's like, could you go spank somebody, please? Right? Yeah, okay. And I'm like, where's my picture? I don't, this is not what I thought I was going to walk into when I got home. And yet it is the reality of life. And... I think that when I walk into that, I don't know about you, but I, f I can feel myself in an instant start to close down. My expectations are not met. I'm not the king that I want to be when I walk in the door, right? I'm disappointed. And all of a sudden, I change. Maybe you don't do this, but I change. And in an instant, I can get frustrated. I can become angry with her. I can think all kinds of thoughts that I would have never thought when I had the vision of how life was going to be when I walked in the door. The, the, the biggest thing that I think we struggle with in marriage is hiding. And one of the main reasons we hide is because our expectations remain unmet. And most of those expectations are unrealistic. We'll come back to that. I think 
you know, when I, I think another thing that happens there is not only am I expecting something different, but I'm trying then after we start to have an exchange, I'm trying to get Melissa to be somebody different. I'm getting her, I'm trying to get her to be the vision of the person I want her to be instead of celebrating who she is. There's a big difference between those two things, right? One is a fantasy. It's not true. And it, and it, pro, and it isn't even really what I need, right? It's just what I want in the moment. And that's about me. And I miss her. I miss seeing her in those moments when I spend my time fighting against her to try and make her be somebody that she's not. Now, I'm not into this cultural phenomenon that we've seen where just be who you are. Just, you know, you just are who you are and you just be that way. I think that we can be way better than we are in Christ. And I think he is constantly refining us. But the way that we do that is to stop focusing on other people and expecting them to be somebody different and start changing what's going on in here. That's how we become somebody different. So when I look at Melissa, I have to stop, stop expecting her to change and start committing to change myself. So how does this tie back to Adam and Eve? Well, they are, they are hiding and they're clothed now when we find them in Genesis 3. And because they're, they're hiding and clothed, there's something that comes along with that. What does Eve tell God when he says, what's going on here? What does she tell him? What's the first thing out of her mouth? It's the serpent's fault. That's why, we're, that's why we are where we are. And then what, is, what happens with Adam? What does Adam say? It's her fault. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, that's, I wasn't thinking about that, but that's another part of it. Yeah. Adam blames two people. One of them's God for why he is caught in this snare that he finds himself in. So, so we have hiding, which equals shame, right? And then immediately that moves into blame, blaming everybody else. So when I get into it with my spouse, with Melissa, and I'm wanting her to be somebody different in my mind, what is that? What am I doing? I'm blaming her for my discontent for whatever I'm dealing with in the moment. And then that causes her to pull away from me and me to pull away from her. Because can you, can you sit there and be vulnerable with somebody who is attacking you and challenging you? You can, but how hard is that? Have y'all, has anybody ever tried that? Like when your spouse is like going on and on and on about something that you need to change to say like from a real genuine place, like you're right. I am that way. I have done that. Have you ever done that? I have like once or twice. And it's like one of the most gut-wrenchingly difficult things to do. Right? Now, Melissa doesn't go on and on. She doesn't like tear me up. But, but when I feel like I'm in the right and then to, to change my course 
and do that, it's extremely challenging. I, I challenge you to do that at some point. Um, so I think, I think there are two things here, that, two ways that we hide. We try to get the other person to be somebody different, and we hide our own sin from them. There's a reason why the Bible talks about confession, and there are reasons why we hide our sin struggles from one another, right? What are they? Why do we hide our sin struggles from either each other, like in the church, or from our spouse? I mean, we could probably talk about how fear plays into relationships and prevents vulnerability for the rest of the night and then do another series on it. So I don't want to get, I don't want to spend too much time there. But I will say that I think the fear of how somebody else is going to respond is a, is a very important point to make here. Because when we worry about our spouse's response to our sin struggle, there's several things packed into that. One is history, how they've responded in the past, which I want, you know, if you are the person receiving the confession, think about that. How you respond in that moment is going to impact whether or not they're willing to confess when they have more sin to deal with. And guess what? They will have more sin to deal with. And they will have to confess again. It may not always be the same thing. It may not always, you know, be as big as some confessions. But we've got to be willing to receive it in a way that encourages more openness, honesty, more, more reflective kind of questioning rather than a, a condemnation. That is something that I think we feel like, well, let me ask you, why do you think sometimes we come back at a confession with anger and frustration? Why do we do that to each other? I think we also kind of run into this we feel like if the punishment doesn't fit the crime, it's going to happen again, right? Like, I better respond with enough emphasis on this thing so that you don't go down this road again because you hurt me. Yeah, we, we use those moments to hide from each other. And I, I would say if you use a moment of confession and vulnerability to hide from your spouse, it will not breed further confession and openness. And that's going to be problematic later on. So that's another place that Melissa and I have found that when, if, if we are pursuing intimacy, it is finding ways to catch each other in times of brokenness rather than pushing each other away and being sensitive to that. I think that when the blame game starts in Genesis 3, you see a whole host of things fall after that, right? They get kicked out of the garden. They then have two sons who one of them kills the other one. Now, I'm not saying that those two things are directly correlated, but they certainly had to have had an impact, right? Like, I mean, they started, Adam and Eve started themselves down a road of destructive behavior because they started with hiding, and I think that is part of our story. When we start hiding from our spouse or from people around us, 
it starts us down a road of destructive behavior. And, it, and we never land in a place where it's ruining our lives or ruining our marriage. We, we never start there, but we in, we, it, it progresses over time and, and we end up there. And I think that is one of the, you know, when, when the fall happened, something terrible happened, and it was that shame entered in, and then blame followed it. And if those are, if those are prevalent in our relationships, we will find ourselves hiding. And we'll talk in just a second about what that, what that means for, for who, what we feel in relationships. But, um, I know that for me personally, when I'm hiding my sin, I feel alone. And now then I know also what follows that for me is anger. I act out of anger. I react out of anger. For, for everybody in this room, that might look differently. You may not react out of anger. You may feel alone and get really depressed, right? You may um, go start pursuing some thing to throw all of your energy into and, and hide in, in activity. You may hide in alcohol. You may hide in other substances. People hide in a lot of different ways, right? But for me, I see it manifest in anger. And so I, I, would, I would say, I want you to think about, I, I wanted to talk about this and process it, but I haven't even made it halfway through the first page yet, So, and there's three. So um, I want you to think about what does that cause you to do? What does it cause you to do when you hide? Where do you go when you hide? Okay, so how do we hide? We hide with emotional secrecy. What does that mean? There's a, there's a couple of these. This is the first one. Emotional secrecy is I'm not going to let you in on what I feel, good or bad. I'm going to look like I'm just straight as an arrow. I don't let you in on my feelings of sadness. I don't let you in on my feelings of hurt. And I don't let you in on my good feelings either. You probably have known these people before. You might think, are they emotionless? Is this person a robot? The answer is no, they're not a robot. They just may have spent so much time hiding, they don't even know what they feel, right? When you bring that into a marriage, it gets very complicated. And, and obviously people are going to be on varying degrees of this, right? Some people may just have trouble accessing their emotions. Some people may just seem like they have no emotion. So we hide through emotional secrecy. We hide through hidden sin. We have that thing that we think, man, this is going to give me relief, right? This is going to give me some sort of escape from my world so that I don't have to deal with it for just some time, you know, just a small period of time. It's going to be exciting or it's going to be a little bit dangerous. You know, whatever your personality bent is, whatever draws you into the excitement of being into something that you know is not going to satisfy you in the way that you're wanting to be satisfied. 
I mean, that's what Eve does. She grasps for this fruit and she takes what is only God's to give her. That's what sin is. We're grasping and taking what is only God's to give. Fulfillment, joy, those things that we're looking for, we find that, that sometimes in sin. Sometimes we just prevent ourselves from being exposed, right? So we lie. We lie in our marriages. We, you know, we, we tell our spouses things that we think they want to hear rather than what we really think. Now, sometimes that might be healthy. Like if they say, do, you, do I look good in this dress? You know, uh, but it is not good when we acquiesce to every single thing we think our spouse wants because we think that's going to make them happy. Okay? We keep score. We hide by keeping score. And by keeping score, we mean that I've done something for you, and so now you owe me. Now, that may not happen in the moment when you're giving, but it comes up later. And usually what that looks like is, all right, so let's say Melissa and I, are I, I give Melissa flowers, okay? So I've logged it. That's mine. I did, I, I did my husbandly thing, right? So now Melissa is going to take care of me. She's going to do something special for me. And then two weeks go by. Nothing happens. I get nothing. In fact, she's been on me about fixing the sink, and she's been telling me that the yard needs to be mowed. And these are only, the only things I hear, right? I'm hearing all of her things that she's telling me to do. And all the while, I'm like, I gave her flowers. And she's acting like this. This is ridiculous, right? So after about the third thing that she tells me it needs to be done, I blow up. And she's like, what is going on here? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? It makes sense to me because I know why I'm blowing up. But she doesn't. I've hidden from her what's going on internally. And now unless I say, hey, you know, I gave you those flowers two weeks ago and you never said anything about it. She's not going to know. But don't we do that to each other? Don't we hold on to stuff? It does count. It's, okay. It is scorekeeping. It's just on the negative sides. That's where I thought you were going initially. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. No, I think that that is, I mean, that's absolutely, that's even, you know, I think that happens even in more damaging ways when, when somebody's wrongs or maybe they confess something to us and we bring that back and show a lack of forgiveness over and over and over again, it kills intimacy. And we are hiding behind that because we get to use that as our trump card. The problem is there aren't supposed to be trump cards in marriage. You're not supposed to carry it around. No one should be holding the ace of spades. 
if somebody's holding the ace of spades in your relationship, you're hiding from each other. Okay. Great point, Paul. I'm glad you said that. So, um, let's talk about intimacy. What is intimacy? You know, in my, um, in, in my practice, I usually begin with everyone that I meet with, uh, by telling them about what intimacy is, in my opinion. And, and I think that what I would say is that we are always seeking intimacy. I think that's what we're, we are grasping for it, but we're trying to take it for ourselves rather than allowing God through us to, bre- to build that between us and our spouse. Let me say that again. We're, we're trying to grasp for it and take it ourselves what is God's to build through us in our relationship with our spouse. So uh, here's some intimacy killers. Telling your husband or wife that they're just like their mom or dad. These are ones that I've, I've done before. So, But Melissa's parents are, are great people, so she takes that as a compliment. Um, don't bring up things that have already been forgiven, which is something that we just talked about. Don't use what hurts your spouse as a weapon. When you know something hurts your spouse and you use it as a weapon, that's going to kill intimacy. Don't minimize something that they say is an issue. If it's an issue to them, it should be an issue to both of you. If money's an issue because somebody's spending out of control, somebody's buying stuff online or whatever, that should be an issue for both of you that you should sit down and say, let's talk about this. Uh, Don't project what you're feeling on your spouse. So if you're angry, don't say, why are you so angry right now? When you're the one that's angry, okay? Um, I think the I, I think in the process of trying to get to a more intimate place, um, Melissa and I, based on some of those things that I just listed, we have had some knockdown dragouts. Raise your hand. Right, we're going to be vulnerable here. Raise your hand if you've ever had a knockdown dragout fight, in your opinion, with your spouse. All right, we've got a few brave people in here. Raise their hand. Okay, so when, when those knockdown dragout fights happen, do you find yourself listening or hearing what your spouse has to say? This is not a trick question. That's right. Yeah. Our ears are closed. So research actually shows that it, that in conflict, our, our blood pressure and our pulse rises, our, our, our heart rate rises, right? And once it gets above 110 beats per minute, we actually physiologically are unable to hear what the other person's saying. We cannot receive that information let it sink in and truly process it. Isn't that fascinating? So there are, there's a, the Gottmans are the people that have done this research. And what they say is in their, uh, in their institute, they will have people actually go take a break if they get into a fight and they'll, they'll take their pulse and they'll wait until their pulse drops below 110 
and then they'll resume the conversation. So what does that tell us about the intensity of what happens? Does anybody in here think that your pulse has ever gotten above 110 in a, in a fight with your spouse? Raise your hand if you think it has. I'm thinking maybe 200, right? For Melissa, not me. What happens is we stop hearing each other, we stop seeing each other. If you can't hear what's being said, you don't, you don't see the person in front of you anymore. In Luke 7, we have this, this woman that comes in who messes up a whole party for Jesus and, the, well, really for this Pharisee that's invited Jesus over. Luke 7, verse 32 and 50. I'm just going to tell you the story real quick. Uh, you got this woman, says that she's a sinful woman. Most scholars agree that she was probably a prostitute. She, she walks into this party. Now, back in the time of Jesus... If, uh, if a Pharisee invited a uh, rabbi over for dinner, they would have had them, and it does, describes them in this courtyard. The, um, basically what that was, it was a courtyard that was open to the public, and people from around the towns all over would have come to listen to the debate between the rabbi and the Pharisee at dinner. Okay, So we're not talking about a small get-together here with just the followers of Jesus. We're talking about the community has come here. So you remember in this particular story where it says the crowd parted and she walks in? There was an actual large crowd here of people that were watching this take place. Think about this. There were probably, if she was a prostitute, there were probably people in the audience who had been with her. There would have been certainly people who would have seen her and known what her occupation was. One of the cultural influences here is that for a teacher of the law or a rabbi like Jesus to touch a sinful woman like this would have meant that he was unclean, which would have meant that he'd have to go back through ceremonial cleansing, something that they would have really avoided. Okay, so this is a really intense moment where there's all this cultural pressure, not to mention that the woman uncovers her hair, which would have been like in our culture, a woman exposing her breasts. Okay. So she uncovers her hair. She cries on Jesus's feet. She dries his feet with her hair. And what's happening with the Pharisee whose party this woman has ruined? He's at 110, yeah. Yeah. He's at 200, probably. It says that he thinks, he doesn't say it out loud, but he thinks, doesn't he know who's touching her? And so Jesus responds to him, knowing what he was thinking. He responds to him, and he tells him a story about two men who owed, one owed a small debt, one owed a great debt. And he says, both debts are forgiven. Which guy is going to love more? And the Pharisee says, the one who had the bigger debt. Jesus says, that's right. And then he says something that's really interesting. And the scriptures is, is very clear to point this out. And I think it's for a reason. He says, looking at the woman, he says to Simon, the Pharisee, he's looking at this woman and he's talking to Simon. And he's, what does he say? Anybody remember? Do you see this woman? He's looking at her 
and he's talking to the Pharisee. What kind of point would that make to her? Do you see this woman? He's saying, I see you. I see you in the midst of all of this cultural pressure, in the midst of everything that people are thinking about you right now, in all of the faux pas that we've broken, in all of the things that you've done in your past, and everything that's happening right now, I see you. I take this moment to see you and not succumb to all of that junk. This, what, we're, what, what I'm saying right now, this is what was so special about Jesus Christ. That's why he is, that's why he was, he was the son of God because he, he was living in the flesh exactly how God wants us to experience him. And that's exactly what he wants us to give to each other. When Paul says that as he's talking about marriage, he says it's a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church, saying that the two are, are in correlation with one another, right? That's what he's describing. See each other as Christ saw the sinful woman. Be present with each other the way that Christ was there for the woman who was caught in adultery. When everybody else was gone, he was still there with her. Is that the attitude that we carry into our relationships? If it is, we will find intimacy. If we see each other in the midst of all of the junk in our lives. We take a moment to say, forget about all that. I see you. You're beautiful. I love you. I'm thankful for you. I want what's, I want what's good for you. That's intimacy. That's true intimacy. Sorry, I, got on, I started preaching a little bit. I didn't mean to do that. So here's what I think intimacy is. First, we see each other. Second, it's a commitment to each other that we're here. We're staying. We're not going anywhere. You know, we live in a culture where 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I know there are people in this room who've been through that. It's devastating. Right? And I think what happens is we stop being seen when the most fundamental relationship in our life ends. We commit to stay with each other, to be with each other. We make sure that it's safe even when it's hard. This is a hard one for me. When things are challenging in my life, man, I am not fun to be around. Ask Melissa. I'm a complainer. I got my toenail ripped off recently, and I probably asked Melissa a hundred times, do you, do you know what it's like to have your toenail ripped off? I mean, it hurts. She's like, yeah, I've had like four ripped off in the last year. You know, I'm like, really? I never heard you say anything about it. <laughs> I can't not talk about it, right? I'm a complainer. I'm a whiner. I'm kind of a wuss sometimes. And 
you know, when things get hard, I just want to check out. I'm sure that there are people in here that can identify with that, right? I just want to check out. And I think that makes it unsafe for Melissa. When I decide that I'm going to go to my own world and do my own thing, it just doesn't feel safe. It's like, where are you? You know? Staying engaged and keeping it safe when it's hard. That's intimacy. Another one. It is the opposite of hiding. Okay? Intimacy is the opposite of hiding. The reason I put it that way is because hiding is, I believe, our norm. It's, it's our go-to. It's our default. We hide by default. And it's the opposite of that. It's choosing to betray how you feel and what you want to do and taking a step towards the person that you have committed your life to be with. That's intimacy. It's saying, I'm not going to choose my default anymore. Okay? I, I wanted us to discuss some of this, but we're at, we've got four minutes left. So, intimacy is not just about the good stuff, um, which means you let your spouse in on the joy and the suffering. If you're suffering, don't suffer in silence. You don't have to. It's not healthy for you to, and it doesn't make it better. Your kids and your spouse will all feel it and know it. You're the only person that doesn't realize that everybody else knows. So don't hide. Intimacy is built through the day in and day out of catching each other and catching each other well. We catch each other in good times, meaning your spouse is like high on life because something great happened. Maybe Anna Kyle had some sort of awesome thing happen at work and you find joy with him in that moment. How many times do we like come in, you know, I'm sure this has happened with you guys. I sometimes this happens with Melissa. I do this. She's excited about something and I'm like, "Whoa, you're really excited." Man, look at you. Almost like a jab, you know? That I mean, that kills, that takes the, the air out of the balloon, the helium out of the balloon in the moment when somebody's excited and joyful and we just come in and we're like, well, look at you. You're sure, you sure are excited. La-di-da, I'm glad you're having a good day. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened in my day, right? Sharing the joys and the suffering. We don't. In the same way that we don't let the air out of the balloon, we don't say, well, suck it up, buttercup, get over it. I imagine that in my counseling practice, I wouldn't have people come back if, the, if I use those kind of tactics, right? So why do we use that with each other, right? Okay. Brene Brown says this. Brene Brown did a, a, a pretty broad-reaching study that uh, is pretty impressive. If you've ever read, if you, if you haven't read Daring Greatly, 
I suggest you read it. It's awesome. And it talks about vulnerability and that kind of thing. So um, Brene Brown's word is wholeheartedness. That's what she uses to describe intimacy, living into relationships wholeheartedly. She says this, when I asked men, women, and couples how they practiced wholeheartedness around very sensitive issues, one answer came up again and again. Honest, loving conversations that require major vulnerability. We have to be able to talk about how we feel, what we need and desire, and we have to be able to listen with an open heart and mind. There is no intimacy without vulnerability. Intimacy requires vulnerability. And the last thing that I would say is loving well. Loving well is not just, I mean, we, we've cheapened the word love, right? We say, I say this all the time, I love pizza, which I really do. I, could, I love pizza. I probably ate it, what, 90% of my meals growing up? Seriously, this is not a joke, people. I did really eat pizza a lot growing up um, and still do. We had pizza tonight before I came. So um, it's not just saying I love this thing. Dallas Willard says that love is the will to good for another, that you're willing it's good. So I can say I love pizza, but that's for my own benefit. That's, I, don't, I don't care anything about the pizza and what happens to it. I'm not willing it good. I'm will, I am willing it good in my belly, but I'm not willing it good that it, it, something good happens to, to the pizza, right? So you, and actually the, the word love in the Bible is, is referencing this idea that Dallas Willard talks about. That it's, he says this, Um, What exactly is love? It's the will to good or benevolence. We love something or someone when we promote its good for its own sake. Love's contrary is malice, and its simple absence is indifference. Its normal accompaniment is delight, but a twisted soul may delight in evil and take no pleasure in good. Love is not the same thing as desire, for I may desire something without even wishing it well much less willing it's good. I might desire chocolate ice cream cone, for example, but I do not wish it well. I wish to eat it. This is the difference between lust and love as between a man and a woman. It's very simple. If you can ask yourself when you are getting ready to go home, what will to good can I have for my spouse? or for the person that I'm engaging with. It changes what your intent is, right? It changes what you are expecting, which means that love becomes being about for, being for the good, for the good of someone else. And that's intimacy. Intimacy.